0: Tonight, our job is to turn our minds and our hearts to the cross. But this is hard. It's hard for so many of us who have never seen death up close, much less torture. And crucifixion was an exceptionally gruesome Method of brutalizing a person into the grave. Describing the crucifixion, it can be and it has been used for manipulative purposes. And so I've hesitated to do this. But unless we have some sense of the horror, some sense of the gruesome, Sight of a completely naked man in agony. The disgusting smell of bodily functions taking place in full view of everyone. The sounds of their groans and labored breathing going on for hour upon hour. Unless we feel something of the sadistic brutality... We missed the point. The great Roman orator and statesman Cicero said that crucifixion was unique, exceeding burning at the stake and beheading in its gruesomeness. And for the gospel writers, it's not merely that Jesus died, nor that he died unjustly, it's that he died through crucifixion the bitter, brutal agony of this particular type of death is the wrenching reality at the center of the Christian faith. In the words of St. Paul, we preach not Christ died, not Christ assassinated, not Christ unjustly killed, but Christ killed in a particular way, Christ crucified. The God whom Christians worship is a crucified God. It begins with scourging. Roman soldiers using a whip made of leather cords embedded with small pieces of metal and bone. In paintings, Jesus is typically wearing something over his genitals. But that's not the way it was. He would have been naked, tied to a post in a position to expose his back and buttocks to maximum effect. With the first whips, his skin would have been pulled away, exposing subcutaneous tissue. And then the lacerations would begin to tear into the underlying skeletal muscles. This would not only result in pain, but significant blood loss. The idea, you see, was to weaken the victim to just before death or collapse. And throughout all of this, there would be taunting and ridicule. And in the case of Jesus, we've heard there was a mocking crown, a crown of thorns, and a purple robe, and a pretend scepter. What would a man be like once this initial stage of torture was completed? Well, that would depend on a number of factors. His physical condition prior to the torture the the enthusiasm of the soldiers with the whips and the extent of blood loss in the case of jesus the soldiers forced some random bystander simon of cyrene to carry the crossbeam of his cross this probably indicates that jesus was severely weakened some medical historians tell us that perhaps he was close hypervolemic shock, the shock from your circulatory system going into chaos. So, so the victims were paraded through the streets, exposing them to the full scorn of the population. And that was part of it. When the procession reached the place of crucifixion, Jesus would have seen in front of him the heavy upright beam of his cross that the cross rice, the cross piece would be attached to it through a mortise and tenon joint. Then thrown down onto his shredded back, his arms and legs outstretched and nailed into the wood. From the many bones archaeologists of unearthed, we know that the nails were not driven through the palms, but through the wrist. And now the crucifixion begins Proper. The victims lived anywhere from three to four hours to three to four days. We heard in our passage tonight, Jesus lived about six hours. Perhaps the scourging was more intense than usual, or he lost more blood than usual, or he suffered, some say, maybe a cardiac rupture. We don't don't know. But some medical historians think that the major pathophysiological effect of the crucifixion beyond the excruciating pain, was a marked interference with normal respiration, particularly the act of exhaling. See, the ideas that we exhale, without even thinking about it, thousands of times a day. But this becomes impossible for a person hanging on a cross because the weight of their body Hanging by its wrist would depress the muscles required for breathing out. And so to get your breath, you would have to push up with your legs or pull down with your arms. And remember, you're nailed. So you're pushing or pulling on nails. And your bodily functions are uncontrolled. Insects are feasting on wounds and orifices. Unspeakable unspeakable thirst, muscle cramps, bolts of pain from the severed median nerves in the wrists, scourged back, scraping against the wooden post. And then there's the soldiers and the crowds, verbal abuse, spitting, throwing refuse. And so it all ends with the victim forced To be his own executioner. Imagine these men gasping and heaving on their crosses and they die alone. They don't even get the dignity of an executioner. It's the weight of their own body that kills them. There is something particularly horrible about that. Causing someone's own body to turn upon them, against them. To become the actual instrument of their own suffering and execution. From beginning to end, crucifixion was an utterly vile method of putting someone to death. But it wasn't simply the physical pain. It's imperative, you see, that we recognize crucifixion as fundamentally an act of brutalizing shame. It's obscene, deliberately obscene. Even in the darkness of our death-drenched time, we coil from something so dehumanizing. The currency of crucifixion is to debase, to degrade. it's, It's to publicly dehumanize. This was public torture, not Abu Ghraib. Crucifixion was a manner of execution that piled shame upon shame to show that the victim was not fit for human company at any level. And this is part of why it's so hard for us to fix our attention on Jesus. Because of the shame. Because we are looking at a pitiable, shuddering worm of a man covered in bruises. His genitals exposed to ultimate shame. No freedom to cover himself. It is so painful to imagine, but make no bones about it. That was part of the gig. The purpose of pinning up a victim like an insect was to invite the gratuitous abuse of the crowd. And the crowds, they certainly would have played their part. They would have understood that their role was to increase by jeering and mocking the degradation of those who had been designated unfit to live. The whole affair, you see, was designed to tear away the victim's dignity and pride and to shred their personal identity. And so in Mark, chapter 15, verse 33, darkness covers the land. It was the middle of the day. This is freakish, unnatural. This is not an eclipse. It lasts three hours. It is a darkness you can feel. It is black and starless. And the birth of the Son of God, do you remember? There was brightness at midnight, but here at the death of the Son of God, there is darkness at noon. And then tearing through the darkness, a heart-wrenching scream, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's there, right there. In verse 34 it says he cried this with a loud voice the only other time in mark's gospel that those words are used it's by humans tormented by demons Jesus The divine warrior who has spent the last several years battling and defeating illness and injustice and demons is now voluntarily overcome by those forces. He is drawn down upon himself. The dark cloud of evil, Israel's evil, the world's evil, evil itself greater than the sum of its parts has cut him off from the one that he has called Abba. Look at Jesus. Listen to his awful cry. See him embracing our absurd condition. Taking our place under the dictatorship of sin. He has allowed himself to become less than human scum. All the evil impulses of the human race are forcing their way into his body. And this is it. This is where the whole story was going from the beginning, not just the beginning of his birth, not just the beginning of the Old Testament, from the beginning of time, it's all been going here. The entirety of Jesus's mission reaches its crescendo in the cry of dereliction. How can this be? How can this be the climax of a royal story? How can this be the climax to Israel's story, to the story of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven? Always before, whenever Jesus addressed God, he called him Father. When he spoke about God, he spoke about his Father. It was with the deepest intimacy, the greatest familiarity. Once he told his disciples, all things have been given over to me by my Father. On another occasion, he said, no one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and any to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And when he taught his followers how to pray, he said, start here, our father. As we heard earlier tonight, even in the garden of Gethsemane, in his hour of deep Need. He still prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. But not what I want, what you want. Three times he prayed that. And there was no answer. Except this seemingly endless agony on the cross. And now, having drunk the dregs of the cup. He cries out, as mortals beyond number, and some of you, not to the Father, but to God, out there somewhere, radically other, and sickeningly indifferent, and there it is. That's why the whole grand story of God's salvation climaxes in this guttural cry. This is why the last coherent words of Jesus on the cross in Mark's gospel is the heartbreaking cry of Jesus accusing God, begging God, and getting nothing. That cry, piercing the darkness. Because as too many people know, as too many of you know, the deep sting of suffering is its God-forsakenness. Pain is endurable, but a seemingly indifferent God is not. And even that, God has experienced. In this world we live in, with so much pain, how could you worship a God immune to that? Look now. Look to the lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet. Back lacerated. Limbs wrenched. Brow bleeding from thorn picks. Mouth dry. Intolerably thirsty. Plunged into God forsaken darkness. That is God. He laid aside His immunity not only to pain, but to God-forsakenness. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. And he suffered for us. And so, yes, there is still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark. The cross of divine suffering. The cross of Christ. This is God's only self-justification in the cruel world we live in. And in fact, it is at this moment that two remarkable things happen. First, in Mark chapter 15, verse 38, we're told the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple is as good as finished. You see, there was a veil in the temple that closed off the Holy of Holies where only the priest of Israel could go, but not anymore. Its purpose has been taken over by the event of Jesus's crucified Godforsakenness. The crucifixion of Jesus, from now on, that is the access to God. Now, from now on, for you to go into the presence of the living God is for you to go through the death of his son. And in verse 39 is the second event. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Surely this man was the son of God. This centurion, this leader of the group of soldiers who so inhumanely brutalized Jesus, this man who stood watching his thousandth victim die, this man suddenly realized he had never seen anything like this before. The death of Jesus on the cross. This is the event that declared God was God. Our job tonight is to look. At the cross. And to hold our gaze there. And to take it all in. Jesus Christ crucified. He is the loving God himself. Come as a human being. To save men. And women. And children from sin. And death. And from all the stain. And fear. And guilt. And shame. Which cling to our hearts. And our memories. And our imaginations. And our bodies. And our very lives. See Jesus on the wood of the cross, like a king riding a chariot, destroying the devil, the Lord of death, and freeing the human race from its tyranny. See Jesus up on the cross, he is the Lord. A great warrior wounded in his hands, feet, and side. Healing the wounds of sin that evil, that the evil serpent has inflicted upon our nature. See Jesus upon the cross. Here is where the hurricane of divine love meets the cold, cruel darkness of our world. Only the power of God on the cross is greater than sin. A tree once caused our death. But now a tree brings life. And I hope that this is leaving you with sorrow and awe and gratitude and love. Because he did this for you. And he did this for me. He did this for people near and he did this for people far. Jesus has gone to the darkest place in the world. God forsakenness, the place where all he can say is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He's gone there because that was and is the only way the world can be rescued. The only way you and I can be rescued. The only way by which God's love can take the worst on itself and leave us free. With his shameful, chaotic, horrible death, he has gone to the very bottom, the darkest and deepest place of our ruin. And he has planted there a sign that says, rescued. It's the sign of love. The love of the creator for his ruined creation. The love of the savior for his ruined people. Remember the centurion? the very first one to confess faith. Are you worse than him? Could you possibly be worse than him? He did the cruelest thing that's ever been done. He committed the greatest injustice that's ever been committed, the wickedest thing ever done. He did it. And in God's great mercy, he shows us That even that centurion can come into God's kingdom. Do you remember when they were taunting him? Let him come down. He wants to save others. Let him save himself. They didn't know they were mocking him, but they were saying the truth. You see, he couldn't do both. He could not save himself and save others. And even in that horrible moment, we hear God calling out to all of us. Nothing, nothing you do is beyond his reach. Nothing, no one is beyond his reach. Let's pray.